0: Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender.
1: Hey, welcome to the show, everyone. I know we are going through such a difficult time, and I am, and we are at Voice America, working to help you in any way we can, and specifically in my case, to people with disabilities. You all know for the past 14 years, Disability Matters with Joyce Bender has been an effort to bring education, information, quality of life to everyone living with disabilities and awareness. Now we have to use this platform because it is the platform that is national and international for people with disabilities to get information out to them. If you missed last week, Maria Town, the CEO of AAPD, and Kelly Bucklin, the CEO of Nickel, were my guest, NCIL were my guest, and just, oh my goodness, they brought such important information. Uh, both live with disabilities. Both have mobility issues. I would suggest that you go back and listen to that show. You can subscribe to this radio show, to the podcast on Apple or Spotify or Stitcher. Make sure you get it. And listen, please, we want to get the news out. We want to get this information out to all of our brothers and sisters living with disabilities. Share it. Make everyone aware so we can be sure everyone gets the most news on time as they can. So today, I am, I, I got to tell you, I met Jennifer Mathis years ago. And from that day forward, I knew this woman is smart. She's really smart. She's dedicated. She has passionate about people living with mental health disabilities all disabilities but this is her area of expertise and when i had a question that's who i would call any national issue whether it was during the gun violence uh, where they talked about people with psychiatric disabilities no matter what it was i would pick up the call the phone and call jennifer and she is so highly thought of national really as a disability rights voice for people living with mental health disabilities. She is the reason I am on the board of Bazelon, uh Mental Health Policy that she works for. And you need to listen carefully to this program. So, welcome to the show, Jennifer. Uh, how are you? Thank today? you, Joyce. Uh,
2: I'm good. I'm good. I'm hanging in as we all are trying to do.
1: Well, you are today going to be a very important voice for many, many people because, as you well know, <clears throat> people with mental health disabilities are going through such a time. Uh, we we have this emergency in our country right now with COVID nineteen. I thought maybe that first you could talk about uh, tell our listeners what we are doing at Basilon to ensure the rights of people with mental health disabilities to make sure they're treated equally during this time?
2: Sure. So um, we've been, uh, I feel like, doing COVID-19 work uh, almost round the clock these days. Um, There are several different uh, types of things we're doing. First and foremost, we have been I'm um, very focused on these um, legislative vehicles that these um, bills that are moving through Congress because that has the potential to, uh, you know, provide a lot of relief for um, so many different um, segments of society, So address so many different issues where people are hurting and in danger right now. Um, that has been a really difficult process. Um, as anybody who is following it knows, um, and we're now on the third, uh, legislative, uh, bill and, um, negotiations have broken down a couple of times and they're, you know, continuing and, um, let's hope that, you know, we can get something out soon. Um, and I think there will certainly need to be, more bills, and I will talk a little bit about some of the things that are uh, in those bills, um, or some of the things that um, may not be in the bills, so the things that are being kind of tossed around and considered. Um, another thing that we're doing is we're continuing to do our cases that we've got. We've got a bunch of um, existing cases where we're uh, enforcing the rights of our clients. And, you know, in many of those cases, in pretty much all of those cases, it's a whole new ball game now. It's a whole new world. And I think we're all struggling to figure out um, how to ensure that their rights uh, get implemented and enforced um, in this environment, um, it's really ground so many things to a halt. We have all of these community integration settlement agreements, and, you know, we've had thousands of people with psychiatric disabilities who have been transitioning out of institutional settings and into the community, and now, all of a sudden, everything has stopped. Um, It is a disaster uh, because community providers um, are not able to... Uh, serve all the people they need to serve, given the current restrictions on them in many cases. Um, people are just not moving out. People are stuck in institutions. Institutions may be death traps right now. Um, and we're all trying to figure this out. And what can we do with telehealth that isn't already happening and how can we greatly expand that? What what changes do we need to make um, to ensure that um, people can Get what they need. Um, and then thirdly, I've been spending a fair amount of time on another important issue, which we can talk about, um, later on about, um, rationing of medical treatment, of life saving treatment for people who have COVID 19. As we have seen in other countries, we may be headed pretty soon to where, um, some of them have been, where, um, you know, we're overwhelmed. Uh, in our hospitals, and we clearly don't have enough resources, we don't have enough ICU beds, we don't have enough ventilators by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, what uh many systems have done in those circumstances is adopt rationing systems where, you know, if not everybody is going to be able to have their life saved, then you need to figure out, who you're going to give the treatment to, and, you know, as with so many other things in life, um, what has happened, I think, historically, when people have implemented those types of rationing schemes is that disabled lives are devalued, and people with disabilities um, often are the ones who are left to die because... Um, people think that um, their lives either you know, weren't sufficiently high quality in the minds of people without disabilities or that they didn't think they were going to survive, and Lord knows how many times people with disabilities have outlived the predictions of their survivability um, by the medical profession, but um, that is a very, very serious concern. It's sort of a life and death matter, and so we've been doing... Um, a variety of things from trying to get something into this legislation to um, we just filed a complaint with the HHS Office of Civil Rights over the weekend um, and uh, we have been you know, doing other things, we've been advocating directly with HHS to try to do a guidance um, and met with them and had uh, sent them some principles and I know NCD had gotten involved and CCD, um, which I, I was involved with as a co-chair of the uh, Consortium for Citizens with Disabilities Rights Task Force. Um, we uh, sent the letter, which many people um, were very, uh, thought was very important um, to HHS to try to urge them to do a guidance. So, those are some of the kind of big picture, and that's a big picture summary of the, the things we're working on. Um, I could talk a little bit about. Um, some of the issues that are um, in that are kind of tossed around in these bills, um, if that would be useful and how they relate to people with psychiatric disabilities, would that be helpful? Jennifer, what is the uh, website at Bazelon? Uh, it's Bazelon?
1: Why well, I'm telling you all that, you know, I am so honored that someone of Jennifer's statue would take time. To, you know, to, to be on our show today, but she really is, though, a national leader for all of us living with mental health disabilities. That's why I told you make sure you share this with other people. Um, but why I asked for that website, you heard how much they're doing at Basilon. This isn't like a huge company, this is very small. Look what they're doing tirelessly. So, <clears throat> dig in. To that pocketbook, that wallet, make a donation today. Uh, get it out. I don't care how small, but we can't help people if you, if we don't have revenues coming in. Um, yeah, Jennifer, I would really, uh, I know there's so much going on right now with these bills uh, and, and what happened at, uh, in Washington. So why don't you go ahead and talk about that? Sure.
2: So. Yeah, a lot of the uh, issues that are faced by people with psychiatric disabilities are the same issues uh, faced by people with other types of disabilities, and a lot of the things that Maria and Kelly talked about, I think, um, are issues as well for people with psychiatric disabilities. I want to highlight a few of the key things that we have been focused on. Um, And I would also say that, frankly, there are a lot of the same issues that other broader communities are concerned about we have common cause with you know the homelessness community the civil rights community the employment rights community and so many others and you know it's been useful that everybody is advocating um for so many of the same things um it is nonetheless it seems to be um an endless and um a significant slog Um, And, you know, we're not getting um, so much of of what we need. Um, But I would say certainly um, one of the most important things that, you know, is in these bills to some extent um, or is in some of these bills, but it's just not nearly enough, is um, support for home and community-based services. And that is so key, as I mentioned before, that what we're seeing in our cases is that You know, people have been stuck now in institutional settings. It is, um, a scary situation. I mean, it's not only, as it always has been, a violation of people's civil rights that, um, they are stuck in these institutions, um, when they could live in more integrated settings, um, in thousands and thousands of people in our cases around the country, um, but, you know, in addition to that, in many cases, these institutions have become even more prison-like in some of the nursing homes where our folks are in Illinois. uh, People are not even allowed to go out the door when, I mean, they're not committed there. There should be no restriction on them doing that, but um, because of the restrictions around COVID-19, that has happened. And so, They are not only needlessly segregated, they literally can't leave. Um, And uh, it is, you know, run like a prison in many ways now. And they have no prospect of getting out in the near future because everything has shut down. And it just makes it more and more urgent. And the other thing I should say is that... um, you know, institutional settings, whether they be nursing homes or psychiatric hospitals or prisons or jails, I mean, right now uh, are probably the most dangerous settings that one could be in in terms of this uh, pandemic. And we've already seen that, you know, one of the first places it started was in a nursing home um, in Washington state uh, that has started in the U.S. Um, And so many people died in that nursing home. It's been so difficult to contain the spread in institutional settings. Um, There started to be some cases in one of the state psychiatric hospitals in Washington State. Um, You're starting to see some uh, cases break out in other institutions. And, you know, these places really, I think, have the potential to become death traps. So it is just our usual concerns, times... 150 uh, right now that we get people out. And, you know, it is ironic that actually if you look around the world, there are efforts, including in this country, to start releasing people from jails, um, you know, people who um, don't have a record of violence or aren't there for a violent crime, um, people who, you know, the, the jail... Uh, the correctional administrators decide, you know, if we're going to release some folks, these are the folks we think we can release um, right now. And so you've got people being released from jails, and yet people are stuck in um, disability institutions. And really, you know, there has not been the same kind of talk about Let's get lots of folks out now, and in fact, it has been so much the opposite because the community system is shutting down and collapsing, and so um, we desperately, desperately need help there, and the one thing I would say about these legislative pieces is that, you know, everybody talks about HCBS, Home and Community-Based Services, and That's something that, you know, the disability community understands as, you know, a set of services where it it allows people with disabilities to live in their own homes, and their own communities. And, you know, we all think about HCBS and understand what we're talking about. But with mental health, I think because the financing sometimes... You know, works a little bit differently under the Medicaid system, which is pretty much the whole public mental health system is, is financed by Medicaid, um, HCBS by itself doesn't always clearly mean community mental health services. And so I've been a little bit concerned, and I think it's important for people to carry the message that it needs to include whatever you mean by hcbs it needs to be clear in these bills that it's not just what we call hcbs waivers because those usually don't include people with psychiatric disabilities for complicated reasons and so there's other services they're funded by other parts of medicaid they're not always labeled hcbs even though they are home and community-based services um, but most of the community mental health services are funded separately under what's called the Medicaid rehab option. I don't want to get too wonky about it, but um, the point is that it just needs to be clear that whatever Congress does, that with HCBS, it needs to be clear it's also covering mental health. And so yeah. that's one of the, that's probably the most important thing. I think, um, you know, some of the other things, certainly medication issues, um, you know, those that's at issue in these bills and, you know, there are various fixes that people have asked for or are being considered, you know, having um, people be able to have additional supplies of medication because, of course, the concern is people will run out um, of medication and usually you can't refill a prescription until you are at the end of your last supply and so right now if people are either not going to be able to get to um, a pharmacy, not going to be able to get their new prescription either because they're quarantined or because they're sick or because um, there's no transportation now or, um, you know, any number of other reasons, or their kid is in the house, um, that they be able to have more flexibility. And so um, that's certainly another issue that has come up um, Unemployment insurance, paid leave for people who have to be out of work, um, paid leave was addressed, paid sick leave anyway, um, in one of the prior um, bills that was passed, relief bills. But you know, it really wasn't enough. It was two weeks of paid leave for some people. And, um, you know, that's uh, given um, how this is stretching out, I think not going to be nearly sufficient so I think those battles are continuing and then there's concerns about some of the negative things that we keep hearing that you know there are um, provisions that are being tossed around to waive provisions in the IDEA for kids with disabilities to waive the Every Student Succeeds Act which would um, set which did and does um, require um, Uh, Goals and services for kids with disabilities in school. And so, um, you know, those are concerning um, efforts to sort of use the pandemic to try to, I mean, understand why people would be concerned that it would be harder to provide some of the services that we've been providing once everybody is doing something like remote or distance learning. But... You know, that doesn't mean that you leave kids with disabilities by the wayside and say, oh, well, we're not going to educate you anymore. So, um, that's been concerning. Um, there were provisions that I think people were seeking to basically weave or change the ADA, um, in terms of workplace rights, um, confidentiality concerns so that um, I guess they could ask more questions of employees with disabilities to or disability-related questions, medical questions they usually wouldn't be able to ask um, because they wouldn't be job-related. Um, that was pretty concerning because uh, it seemed like people were seeking very broad changes, which are not necessary. And in fact, the EEOC has issued a guidance about how you deal with a pandemic and what an employer can do. And it you know does say employers can do certain things that under other certain circumstances other sorry other circumstances they might not be able to because now it would be consistent with business necessity and so they've addressed that already there isn't a need to um change the ADA um to give employers more more rights or roll back workers rights so anyway that's a You know, the summary of some of the um, highlights of um, what's in these bills and how it um, affects folks with psychiatric disabilities.
1: Well, actually, I'm going to start with the most recent thing. I mean, what you just talked about, uh, which is kids, children at home with disabilities, you know, I know what you're talking about. How the Secretary of Education is trying to roll something out where um, there would not really be, shall I say, a demand uh, on on the IEP services. What this was just asked to me. What, what would happen? I mean, what would happen to these these
2: children? Right. I have no idea what would happen. It's a frightening prospect. And, you know, I, I mean, let's hope that, um, that does not happen. Um, and certainly, you know, folks should be aware it would, I mean, be for a presumably a limited period of time. It would not be permanently changing the law. But nonetheless, I mean, even for a temporary period of time, we could be talking about a significant period of time, and it's obviously unacceptable for kids with disabilities to, um, you know, simply not be able to get any of the help that they need. I think some of the um, the answers will have to be, you know, very similar to the community-based services issue. Um, that I was talking about before with getting people out of institutions the community providers um you know are they're having to deal with a different situation where they can't have contact with people and you know they part of their job what they do every day and engaging people and um you know helping people navigate different situations in the community and helping people get housing and helping people get jobs and Um, helping people integrate and helping people build skills. It's all, you know, in a lot of in-person contact. Well, you know, a lot of that can potentially be done remotely. And so, you know, people are exploring more and more telehealth. And I think a lot of the services for kids in school, whether kids with disabilities or kids without disabilities, people are now doing Zoom learning. And so um, I think people will have to be creative um, and, you know, figure out how to do a lot of the s- services that they used to do before through different ways, through, um, you know, the phone and through the computer and uh, video. Um, lots of concerns, obviously. Lots of families don't have access to uh, the computer technology and um, you know, the, it's unclear how this is all going to play out. But, I mean, the answers have to be that we have to get creative about how to do things differently rather than just saying, you know, we're giving up on these kids and we're giving up on these people. And, you know, that all we can do is just waive the requirements because we couldn't possibly help them.
1: Well, it's a it's a terrifying thought But this is why this show is so important, so that you can be vigilant. If you're a parent, you can be on this. You know to follow. You know, wait, what are we doing in our state? Of course, this would be federal, but you need to know what's going on so that together we can hold the course, so to speak. Um, Well, hey, every half hour, we have our news break, Advocacy Matters. And we have Perry Jude Radisick with us. Perry, how are you?
0: Hey, Joyce, I'm, I'm doing fine. Uh, practicing, uh, you know, what the governor is asking Pennsylvania to do, which is uh, work remotely. And so Disability Rights Pennsylvania is open for business and uh, our intake system is open. So, uh, you know, doors are open remotely, virtually well, no, that's good for everyone to know. That's good for
1: everyone to understand. So I'm glad you brought that up. So, Perry, what do you have for us today?
0: So, uh, you know, it's interesting, and, the, and I want to support what Jennifer has been talking about, about that legislation. And and Advocacy Matters, what's important is that, that people take action, always take action. And today is an important day. And so there are numerous ways uh, and different organizations you can go through to take action on this third piece of legislation that's moving through the Senate today. So, uh, so you can go through the Center for Public Rep- Representation. You can go through Bazelon. You can go through the National Disability Rights Network and find an easy way to participate and take some action. And I think that's important because, uh yes, we are told to uh, participate in a community exercise of isolation. And yes, staying at home is an act also of community care, but we have to do something for uh, advocacy for ourselves. And right now, right today, that's going to one of the organizations that we rely on nationally, to take some action on these bills that are moving through Congress and do something for yourself and for the entire community and make sure that people with disabilities are included in the legislation that Jennifer is talking about. And it's as simple as clicking on a link, filling out your name and address, and telling Congress to include people with disabilities, to include people with mental illness in in the legislation that's moving through Congress now. And that would include increasing funding for community uh, community mental health uh, because we've lost so much funding over the years. So we will have a couple of actions on our website soon that you can participate in to get into a a point uh, that you can access uh, we are not expendable, and we're not going to rest until the legislators create equity for our community throughout this crisis. So we're going to keep posting information. Like other organizations, we'll have our own uh, COVID-19 resource. We're working on that webpage now. So that's the only way we're going to make it uh, through this uh, crisis, and, and it's we're going to do it together. So um, really it's important that people – uh, take uh, take action, and uh, do it through advocacy. Um, so true.
1: Hey, Perry, how about giving us the website?
0: Yes, it's uh, disabilityrightspa.org.
1: And what a great organization that it is. And, Perry, I want to thank you for fighting the fight every day for all, all people with disabilities in Pennsylvania. Um, I mean, you have done so much. I am so uh, just proud to have you with us.
0: Thank you, and uh, thanks for having this important topic today.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Perry. Well, Jennifer, um, you were talking about, I have a question. When you were talking about sure. ration, rationing, now I'm yes. picturing this. I'm picturing, uh, you know, two people with uh, coronavirus, one 50 and in pretty good health. The other person with uh, disabilities, like any disability, but cystic fibrosis, whatever, where are they going to give that help to first? And my guess is going to be the healthy person.
2: Well, that's exactly right. And that's what we are seeing happening in Italy. And that is what is um, showing up in some of the states protocols and uh, states. Some of them have um, specific guidelines for um, crisis. Care standards, or they call it, you know, um, standards um, when you're managing scarce resources. And um, there's a number of them online. And actually, we were um, following what was happening in Washington State because um, there were some articles about that, including uh, a couple of New York Times articles talking about what was happening there because Washington State, of course, is. Um, one of the places where, um, we have the highest number of deaths. Um, and, uh, those articles set out some pretty concerning, uh, things about those protocols. And so, you know, we looked at those protocols and, um, they say things like, well, in deciding who gets the treatment, um, if there's not enough to go around, you, one of the things you consider is, um, they call it baseline functional status, um, like loss of reserves and energy, physical ability, cognition, and general health. So, you know, what does that mean? That suggests, um, If they think you don't have, you know, as much, quote-unquote, physical ability as somebody else, then um, you may, you know, that may count against you. Um, You may get lower priority. If, uh, you know, what does cognition mean? If you have an intellectual disability, does that count against you? Um, If you don't have what they consider good general health, does that count against you? Um, There were... Uh, other protocols online from Washington that said um, overall survival um, is maybe qualified as healthy long-term survival, um, recognizing that this represents weighting the survival of young, otherwise healthy patients more heavily than that of older, chronically debilitated patients. And so, yes, if you have... You know the cystic fibrosis, or if you um, you know have have any number of um significant disabilities um, you know intellectual disabilities um spinal muscular atrophy is named in not in Washington's protocols but some others um and uh certainly we know folks who have spinal muscular atrophy um who, you know, in some cases use a vent, um themselves. Um, but, you know, they're they live their lives and their good lives. And um there is no reason why we should say, well, they should die. Um, you know, so that uh, you know, we could give uh a, a an ICU better a ventilator to somebody else instead. Um so yeah, that's pretty it's pretty concerning, and, um, you know, they sort of invite doctors, it seems, to make decisions um, based on uh, generalized assumptions about people with disabilities, either about their quality of life or about, you know, how much treatment they think they're going to need, um, and that's pretty concerning. We, you know, know this is uh, against a backdrop of a long history of um, bias, I think, um, whether, you know, I'm not suggesting that it is um, uh, fueled by by bad intent, but it's certainly fueled by misunderstandings um, at a minimum um, in the medical profession about the lives and capabilities of people with disabilities. And so, Um, this is a scary, scary time. We have protocols online in a state. They're going to be used soon. Um, you know, according to the press that's coming out. And so, um, that made many of us, um, really, really anxious about, um, you know, the prospect of significant numbers of people with disabilities dying because they're going to get you know, put to the bottom of the line in terms of, um, you know, who gets hospital beds and who gets ventilators. So, um, that's the issue. Um, we filed a complaint, um, did it very quickly over the weekend, um, on behalf of the ARC of the, the United States of uh, Disability Rights Washington, the PNA. Um, the, a group called SAIL, Self Advocates in Leadership. Um, and I think, uh, there was another plaintiff, from, well, there's, uh, Ivanova, Ivanova Smith, um, who is, uh, an individual, uh, with an intellectual disability. Um, and, you know, we challenged, and this complaint is filed with HHS Office of Civil Rights. Um, the lawyers are, are Bazelon and Sam Bagenstoss, the Center for Public Representation, the Autistic Self Advocacy Network, um, Disability Rights Washington and the ARC. And so, um, what we are saying is that, um, this scheme is discriminatory, that, um, it, Disadvantages people with disabilities um, in ways that are not uh, called for, not appropriate. Um, It invites doctors to make decisions based on um, unfounded assumptions about their disabilities. um, And, you know, it's going to treat them essentially differently um simply because they have a disability. So somebody like Ivanova says, you know, I have an intellectual disability. This talks about cognition being a factor that counts against you. I may not get a vent. If I get COVID-19 and I'm in the hospital, you know, I may get turned away. Um, but why should I? There's another person, um, Rose, who um we listed as an example in the complaint. Rose has cystic fibrosis and... Um, Rose says, well, you know, they're going to say that because I have cystic fibrosis, looking at these guidelines, they may just, you know, count me out. But in fact, my breathing capacity is actually good compared to most people's. But, um, you know, they don't, um, they're not going to do that kind of assessment potentially. They're just going to count me out based on um, the kinds of protocols that they have. And so um, we are hoping that HHS will issue a decision um very quickly on that because everything is moving fast and, you know, who knows, but it seems that within the next month or so, we could be in situations where um in Washington or other states, um, people are triaging in hospitals and they are, you know, deciding who lives and who dies. And we just want to make sure that people with disabilities don't become a big casualty um, of that decision-making because of the built-in bias um, in that process.
1: That would be terrible, Jennifer. You know, I'm sitting here. I'm sorry. I couldn't couldn't even speak for a few moments. I'm thinking about what you said. I I was actually speechless because you know what? Yeah. That's, That's like eugenics. I mean, that's yes. horrible. It is. It's like eugenics. Yes. It's like, okay, uh, you are healthy. You don't have a disability. You you do have comorbidities. You have more than one disability. Um, that includes a psychiatric disability. And imagine if they made making decisions like that. I
2: mean, it just takes well, my breath right. away. That's it right. It does. And... And, you know, it's interesting. Um, We filed a complaint uh, at the Baselon Center. We filed a complaint together with the Texas PNA and the American Diabetes Association just a couple of weeks ago with HHS um, Office of Civil Rights on an organ transplant issue. And it's, you know, a similar set of issues. It's a different context, but it's the same idea of rationing um, medical treatment, or in this case, really scarce organs, um, when there aren't enough to go around. And that's another area where, you know, you have the same conversations about, you know, who lives and who dies, who gets the organs, who doesn't, and, you know, what kind of schemes do you use. And I think it's an area where we have seen that there is a long history of disability based discrimination um that has really gotten more attention because that has been happening more obviously this issue of rationing life-saving treatment you know in a pandemic doesn't come around that often um but the organ transplant issue is always with us and so um there have been a number of states now that passed their own laws we think the ADA applies clearly but um, because that doesn't seem to have changed the world. Some states have passed some very specific laws about this, but one of the things that I noticed is that if you look at the laws on the books now, um, or not the laws, but the um, uh, the protocols in many um, organ transplant centers or hospitals, um, you'll see that a lot of them have uh, exclusions or negative weight for psychiatric disability, and so You know, we just had this situation where we had a woman who was trying to get a pancreas transplant for diabetes management. Um, It was not actually a life or death situation in her case, but it's important. And um, she was denied the transplant simply because she has PTSD. Wasn't anything about her PTSD that in particular they. Um, had an issue with and they couldn't articulate and didn't, you know, have even any basis to suggest that it would impact her negatively. But, um, the decision was you have PTSD, you're out. And so, um, you know, certainly this issue is very real of, um, disability based discrimination in these types of. Uh, decisions about medical treatment and who gets it and who doesn't in a rationing situation. Mm,
1: Terrible. Hey Jennifer, uh, I want to talk to you specifically uh, about people with mental health disabilities uh, let's say clinical depression bipolar disorder Mm -hmm. no matter what it is but that are at home isolated Yes. What suggestions do you have because as you know that That can actually be that can be a life or death situation. So, for people yeah, listening to the absolutely. show right now, for people listening to the show right now, what what advice do you have?
2: Well, I think probably the most important thing is that even if you are physically isolated, you know you don't have to stay. Socially isolated, and you can reach out to people, and you need to stay connected to people. We all should be doing that right now. Somebody um, recently suggested, actually, I think it was Mark Salzer um, at um, Temple University who first said, you know, we shouldn't be saying um, social distancing. That's the wrong word. We should be calling it physical distancing um, because we really. Uh, don't want to be doing social distancing. We want to be doing social connection. Yes, we may need to have physical distance and physical isolation, but that is very different than um, social isolation, which is incredibly damaging. And so let's not let our physical isolation become social isolation. So that, I think, was just such an incredibly important point, and I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, And then right after he said that, the World Health Organization came out and said something very similar. Um, So it was interesting. But I think that's a really important point that, um, you know, simply because you are isolated in your home and we're used to seeing people and spending time with them physically does not mean that, um, you know, that's the only way that we can connect to people. And it is important to connect other ways. Um, And, you know, I... I think that this is the key to good mental health services, really, uh, you know, is, is connecting with people um, and whether it's, you know, people with mental health issues that aren't necessarily that significant on the spectrum, people who are going to therapy or seeing a counselor um, or You know, it's people who have very significant issues who, you know, are receiving peer support services in a crisis or um, people who are getting, you know, supported employment services or people who are um, under, well, doing something called motivational interviewing where, you know, often people who have lived in an institutional setting for a long period of time, it's hard for them to even envision what life is like to live in the community anymore and so you know to help them think about what they want what their goals and desires are for transitioning to the community you have to go through a process it's all about connection it's all about really developing relationships and we have all these fancy names and structures for our mental health services but really you know at the core it is all about relationships. It's all about social connection, building relationships of trust with people, having people that you can um, talk things through with, that you can, um, uh, you know, disclose information to and feel comfortable about it and kind of, you know, have help working things through. And so it really is, um, I think, the key, whether it's a, you know, significant psychiatric issue that someone is dealing with or, um, you know, something that is just, you know, the ordinary person going to counseling. Um, You know, it's all really important to maintain social connection and not isolate ourselves, even if we're physically isolated in our homes.
1: Don't you think it would probably be a good time to either use the phone, like calling someone, or even better yet, FaceTiming versus just texting. I I saw you mentioned that on the Bazelon site, and I can see why you did. Um, I can't believe when you talked about that social distancing. The first time I heard it was a month ago from a friend of mine, Richard Roberts, who works for an embassy in Okinawa, and he's written many Books on vocabulary uh, and and communication. And he sent me an email and he said, "I wish they would call that uh, physical distancing." And so now, right. when we all when we all think about it, I could see, yeah, why did we do that? But what do you think about that? Don't you think people should uh, try to, you know, actually talk on the phone?
2: Or, or uh, WhatsApp or FaceTime, whatever. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think it's whatever works for people. Um, I, I I think that you know texting for a lot of people is kind of uh, you know it, it's not as rich a, a communication um, uh, method as as others because it's uh, you know it's hard to text fast <laughs> and um, and it you know there's, it feels more limiting. On the other hand, you know, some people actually um, communicate better that way or more comfortable. And so, you know, I I don't remember what I think that um, I have something, I may have sent you something from mental health America, which has some, you know, some, some tips on kind of communicating with people and staying in touch and relaxing and all of that. But I would say that in terms of texting versus calling or whatever, it really just, it seems mm-hmm. like you know, and, and I've certainly learned um, from generations younger than I that you know people have different ways than I do of um, communicating or relating to people that they prefer. And so, um, I don't know. <laughs> it's um, you know, I don't want to be prescriptive, and it basically whatever whatever makes people comfortable. Um, and, you know, there are some folks who, because of a disability, because of autism or something else, don't, you know, like to talk on the phone too much. And so, you know, whatever, whatever works for people, really. But the important thing is to stay in touch. And there were a couple of, um, New York-based mental health, uh, coalitions that yesterday put out, uh, uh, something called Strive for Five. Um, which was a set of principles I sort of liked that basically says we're going to have goals of, um, connecting to five people that are important to us every 30 days or something like that. And so, you know, having those kinds of goals, I think, and making sure that you, um, you know, stay connected is important for some people. They might want to do a lot more than strive for five or, you know, not so much, but, um, it, it is just important to, I think, you know, maintain the contact that you need. And it shouldn't, it is harder when you're physically isolated, but it is not impossible.
1: Well, what about people that now are having a hard time with a therapist meeting with them?
2: Yeah, and I, I do think that is a problem and it is going to become more of a problem. Um, I have also seen people with the opposite problem where, um, a therapist or a psychiatrist is saying, you have to come in person and meet with me because, you know, I'm not going to renew your prescription or I'm not going to continue seeing you if you don't show up in person. And, you know, that, itself. That also creates problems for people who, um, you know, feel not safe um, going on public transportation right now um, or literally can't go on public transportation right now because it's been cut um, or, you know, can't leave their homes because they're quarantined. So all of these things, I think, are problems. And, um, I, you know, I think that therapy certainly, you know, can be done over the phone. People should be flexible. Psychiatry can be done over the phone. It is not always the same. It's not the same experience. But um, again, I think that we are in an environment, a situation where we need to start being more flexible, doing things a little differently than we had done them before and um, get out of our box of You know, saying we can't do it this way because we don't do it this way. We never do it this way. It's essential to do it the way we always have done it. And, you know, just start um, adjusting because we need to do that to keep ourselves alive and keep ourselves happy. Well, first of all,
1: Jennifer, I cannot thank you enough for being with us today. The
2: website again for Basilon is www.bazelon.org.
1: Yes, with our great CEO, Holly O'Donnell. I, I want to make sure that, um, you know, we have other great disability leaders like uh, so many, Eve Hill, uh, you know Maria so many people involved at Bazelon but remember what I said about taking time to make a contribution you know what I was thinking Jennifer this is going to be a time like pre-ADA when Justin and Yoshiko and hello Yoshiko I know you're listening um, worked we all worked together the, the, in unity to get this passed well guess what this is going to be a time you break down the silos and we all work together because, yes, our lives do depend on what happens here. And so I, I hope that happens. And, and then, Jennifer, to you, thank you for fighting the fight for people with mental health disabilities. Um, you do so much for this country. And I just am so honored to count you as a friend.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I'm honored to be on the show and I so appreciate you um addressing this topic. It's so important and this is really the time more than ever that um, you know we have to make sure people are listening.
1: Yes, that's right. Um and also I wanna thank uh, Employment Options, Wells Fargo, Peoples for being a sponsor and hi Mark. Hi Mark has been a sponsor of this show for four years. So thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners throughout the world. Uh, We have 17 countries with listeners. China, actually being the largest listener, I want to say to all of you, when you have a disability, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, you are still our brother or sister, and, you know, we care about you as you have gone through this terrible and are going through this terrible crisis, but together we have a voice that can make a difference. Um, Jennifer, do you have a message you want to leave with our listeners?
2: Well, I would say, um, you know, a couple of things. Um, One, don't stay isolated, as we talked about, you know, physical distancing, but not social distancing. That's really super important right now. Um, number two, pay attention and advocate, advocate, advocate. Um, you know, this battle is happening on the federal level and to the extent that people can, um, you know, get on the NDRN website or get on uh, other websites, to pay attention to what's coming in their email box and contact their uh, members of Congress. That's super important. But, you know, even after these federal battles are done, there's going to be a lot of advocacy people need to do with their states. And so be in touch, be in touch with your local advocacy community, with the PNA, with the independent living centers, and all the local disability groups to act together, okay. figure speak. out what you should be doing, and speak up. And, uh, yeah, they speak, gotta, up. yeah exactly. speak
1: up. Yeah, speak up. Well, you know what? we end exactly. every show, we end every show with a quote. And Jennifer, hearing everything you said today, uh, our quote today is Martin Luther King Jr., who said, "Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. As she's saying right now, don't be silent. This is Joyce Bender, America's voice, where disability matters at Voice America. Dot .com be safe everyone talk to you next week
0: Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in please join us next Tuesday at 11am Pacific time and 2pm Eastern time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Voice America Variety Channel We are the leader in live internet talk radio VoiceAmerica.com